Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners, so if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio, where each week we bring you an in-depth conversation with a creative Mississippian. I'm your host, Lauren Rhodes, at the Mississippi Arts Commission, and today I'm talking with W. Ralph Eubanks, the 2023 Governor's Arts Award winner for Excellence in Literature and Cultural Ambassador. Ralph is a writer whose work focuses on race, identity, and the American South. He's faculty fellow and a writer-in-residence at the Center for the Study of Southern Culture at the University of Mississippi. He's the author of the book, A Place Like Mississippi, as well as two other works of nonfiction, Ever is a Long Time, and The House at the End of the Road. Welcome, Ralph. Thanks so much for joining us today, and congratulations on your Governor's Arts Award. Thanks so much for having me here today, Lauren. It's wonderful to be talking with you. Well, I also want to congratulate you on another honor you received recently. You were the Grand Marshal in your hometown of Mount Olive's Christmas Parade, and you received a key to the city. It was an amazing day. There is nothing like being recognized by your hometown, and there's nothing like a small town Christmas parade. There really isn't. So what was it? How long had it been since you'd been back to Mount Olive? It had only been a few months. Okay, I, okay. I, I, I visit fairly regularly, but it's different seeing it from inside a car where you're distributing candy to <laughs> on the street and you're seeing people that you haven't seen in years. And even a whole group of my high school classmates um, showed up. Oh, for, wow. Who still lived was, Who still lived there or came back no, just for the parade? No, lived there. One of them even came from Florida. So it's uh, so it was people made uh, they made an effort, which was very touching. That's wonderful. That's yeah, I'm sure it was a very heartwarming experience. And what do you do with a key to the city too now? Well, it's actually the key to the city. It's an old medieval um, custom from when there were walled cities and you needed a key to enter certain places. So someone who was given the key to the city had that kind of access. It's now become a bit more of a, um, just a kind of a formal thing of recognizing someone from from their town. And it's also nice to be recognized with something that my fellow Mount Olivian, Steve McNair, also received. Oh, okay. The the joke that I I tell people is that, yeah, I've gotten the same award as an NFL football player. (laughs) In Mississippi, that's really something. That that is really (laughs) something. Well, congratulations. Um, Speaking of Mount Olive, you've you've written a lot about your childhood and your family um, in your memoir, Ever is a Long Time, uh, which is an incredible book. And could you could you tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up in Mount Olive throughout the the 60s and early 70s? I grew up on an 80-acre farm outside of the town of Mount Olive. So it was kind of our own little world. And I, as I was talking with students at the high school when I was visiting there, 
I reminded them that it was a it was a very comfortable place to grow up, but also that I grew up with a great deal of privilege, that I had my own farm that I grew up on and kind of my own world and not everyone had that. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I recognize that at the time I know that now, but I often say that 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 farm really provided us a great deal of, of shelter from all the turmoil that was going on all around us. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I remember about that, that farm is our gravel driveway. Hmm. And my mother felt that, well, my father would, never wanted to pave the driveway because he said, with the gravel driveway, you can always tell when someone is entering your property. Yeah, And that's something I hadn't really thought about. So when I hear kind of car wheels on gravel, it's a, it's a sound, it's a reminder of that, that place. Mm. So it was a comfortable place to grow up. Uh, it became a little less comfortable in the 70s during integration. And I would say that during my high school years, as I rode in Evers a long time, I was there kind of checking off my boxes like a prisoner waiting for my days from when I got out. Wow. Um, well, and and were books and writing an important part of your childhood growing up? I think it was really the center of my childhood. Wow. We had the bookmobile that came to our house in the summertime. And I, you know, you know, got tons and tons of books from the bookmobile that I read. Lad a Dog, Johnny Tremaine. Across Five Aprils, which is about two families divided during the Civil War. Hmm. I can still remember a lot of the books that I that I read. And then we had this whole series of books called My Book House, which started very young with nursery rhymes and then went up to much more sophisticated stories and kind of working my way through my book house as well as the encyclopedia. So, yes, books and reading were a big part of my life. And also I would go to work with my father in his office in Collins, Mississippi, where he was the Negro County agent. And I would be seated at a desk with an old Underwood typewriter. And I would <laughs> sit there and try to create things on that typewriter or pretend I was typing like my dad was typing up one of his county agent reports. So books and reading and I made my own books while I was oh, really? growing up there too. So it's that's been a big part of my life and you know my years as an editor and publisher. It it's kind of the natural path, I guess, that someone who does that ends up on. Right. Do you remember the sort of books that you were creating as a child? A lot of them had to do with cars. Okay. Okay. I love cars. As friends of mine know that I'm I'm a bit of a car model savant. I can look at a, an hmm. old car and I can tell you what year it's from. And my kids are kind of amused by that <laughs> as well. And the reason is that I would go to see the new models in the showroom as soon as they came out and I would study them. And so it was, I guess I was really thinking about, and I would design my own cars, hmm. thinking about what I want in a car. Um, so Yes, I'm 
it it was a lot of it had to do with with cars. <laughs> well, that's say. that's interesting. I I didn't know that about you. Um, <laughs> So you you left uh, Mount Olive. You went to the University of Mississippi, and then on to graduate school in Michigan. Um, what were your life and career plans at that point in time? Well, I started at the University of Mississippi as a pre med student. Oh, and my dad wanted me to be a doctor, and that really was not to be. I kind of couched a little bit by majoring in psychology, but then I ended up with a double major in psychology and English. And I ended up going to graduate school in English and got a master's. I was accepted into the doctoral program. And then I got cold feet. And I had a conversation with Evans Harrington, who was then the chair of the English department. And I said, you know, Evans, I don't know if I should stay in my PhD program or not. I don't know if I'll have a job when I get out. And he said, well, Ralph, there will always be a job for you at Ole Miss. And that scared me. <laughs> inside. I didn't want to end up back in Mississippi. So I left my doctoral program. Wow. Uh, and, and, you know, it's something that I regretted for a long time, that, but I've really given up that regret about it. Um, because if I had stayed, I don't think I would have gotten to do so many of the things that I have, I've gotten to do in my career. Hmm. So as much as I wish I had a doctorate, I think that I really have the same thing as a doctorate now. It's just that it didn't land me back in Mississippi at age 26. Um, right teaching at Ole Miss. I'm happy to be teaching there now, but I don't think I would have been very happy to be there when I was about 26 years old. So you felt like you had to leave Mississippi at that at that point in time? Yes. I, I started thinking about leaving Mississippi, I would say probably from my freshman year of high school. Hmm. And, I, and I think one of the things that really made it very clear that I needed to leave was I went and sold ads for my high school yearbook with two friends of mine who were both white. The girl was very tall. So I let her sit on the front seat of the car while we drove around. And someone called my father's office and said, you need to tell your son not to drive around with white women on the front seat of his car. Mm. And he had a talk with me when I got home and that was when I said, I have to leave here somehow. Mm. And it may not be in the next four years, but at some point I have to leave. So that was when it really became clear to me. I, I, I joke that I started planning my escape by changing my accent. I started <laughs> that in college. Clear Channel Radio was my friend. I listened to WLS from Chicago, WLW from Cincinnati, um, you know, so I'd listen to how these radio disc jockeys spoke and I began to emulate that. When I got to Ann Arbor, I thought that I was safe and then I was outed at a party by a linguist who could tell <laughs> that I was from the South. Huh. And I asked what it was that set him off and he told me and I began to work on that too. So... 
so right now, because I'm home in Washington, you're kind of getting the East Coast, Ralph, it changes a bit when I'm back in Mississippi, because I have to, I have to shift into that so mm -hmm. that, um, and I think when I, when I slip into my Mississippi accent, it's when I'm, it's those moments when I'm really comfortable. Yeah. Well, and, and going back to the, the cars piece, do you normally drive from DC back to Oxford? I do. Do you find that helps with the transition of going, you know, the, the mental transition of north it to south? It does help. It very much helps with the mental transition. I think when that begins is when I hit northern Alabama. And since my parents are both Alabamians, getting to Alabama lets me know I'm almost there. Mm -hmm. So that's when I begin that real transition to where I am as I drive the Tammy Wynette Highway <laughs> and then through Tremont, Mississippi, and then that last leg on the way to Oxford. Hi, I'm Lauren Rhodes. You are listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The Arts Hour is a co-production of the Mississippi Arts Commission and MPB Think Radio. You can also listen to the show on Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5. To have access to all Arts Hour interviews, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. When you look at your vehicle, think of MPB. Need to get rid of your ride? Donate it by calling 877-MPB-4-CAR. Need to have some work done on your truck? Listen to AutoCorrect Thursdays at 10, Saturdays at 11. An MPB license plate reminds you that MPB is with you wherever you go. Go to your county office and ask for an MPB car tag. MPB and cars, better together. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. I'm Lauren Rhodes at the Mississippi Arts Commission. Today, I'm talking with Governor Arts Award recipient Ralph Eubanks. The award ceremony will be held on February 2nd at the two Mississippi museums in Jackson. Before the break, we were talking about your transition from D.C. to Oxford, where you teach at Ole Miss. Um, I'd like to, to switch gears a little bit and ask you when you started writing about Mississippi and your memories and, you know, about your family. I guess the first piece that I wrote about Mississippi was in 1987. Um, it was published in the Washington Post um, in commemoration of the 25th anniversary of the integration of the University of Mississippi. And it was about, um, it was really about how I felt about being an alumnus of the University of Mississippi 25 years later, writing about what my experience was was like there. I would say that I began to write about my family when my kids began to ask me questions about where I grew up hmm. and what Mississippi was really like. Uh, and that started when I began to do research in, in the Sovereignty Commission files. And I began to try to find a way to I found out that that story was very, the story of the Sovereignty Commission and its surveillance of 
activists during the civil rights movement was wrapped up in my own story. And that was really what got me thinking a lot about my family, about how I grew up, as well as the place where I grew up. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that your book, I had not realized the extent of surveillance of the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission. And so that was extremely eye-opening. Did you get comments from fellow Mississippians or, you know, friends or family about that? Were they also surprised by some of your your findings? They were very much surprised. And I used to, um, I did the research in the old archives building. This is before the William Winter archives mm-hmm. building. And I would leave there and I would go to Howland Mal's. And I'd, I had a conversation there with someone at the bar who was asking what I was doing in Mississippi. And I told him the work that I was doing. And he had no idea about the Sovereign Commission. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, thank goodness we don't have to live like that anymore. Hmm. And that's um, that was a real Mississippi moment for me. I think it was, it was a real homecoming moment mm-hmm. because it was the moment when I felt I was doing this work very much on my own. I think it was the first time I'd actually spoken with someone in Mississippi other than the people that I interviewed for the book about the work I was doing. And that was when I realized that there was some real change going on in Mississippi. And do you feel like you you answered your children's questions fully through, through telling that story? I don't know if I answered their questions fully. I think they're still asking questions mm-hmm. about it. Two of my children lived in Chicago for a while. All three of them lived in Chicago. So this, the culture of Mississippi is kind of wrapped up in Chicago mm-hmm. yeah. in so many ways. As I you know, tell people, that Chicago is the up-self. <laughs> so there are things that my kids from living in Chicago and meeting people, you know, the descendants of, of those from the Great Migration, there are questions that they began to ask later. And that I think very much informs the work that I continue to do. So the questions haven't really stopped. It's just that they've become much more sophisticated and much more um, pointed. Mm-hmm. And they keep me on my toes. And, and I, they, all, they always have. And you visited, you brought them to Mississippi with you as part of that research is that, or the writing I of did. the book? Yeah. I did bring them. It was toward the end of the book when I felt that I was comfortable bringing them there and that, that I was comfortable telling them about what happened in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I still remember walking around the University of Mississippi with them. And they were given these hats from the chancellor of the university <laughs> gave them gave them hats hmm. and it said rebels on the back and my and my son was so thrilled to get that hat but then he's looked at the back and he said is it okay if i take this and i said it's perfectly fine wow and i didn't want them i mean i think they had really there were things that i had talked about yeah i didn't want i wanted them to to realize that this is a place where that you can also call home. Mm-hmm. Um, my son, Aiden, I'm working on a book on the Mississippi Delta now, and he says he wants to come down and help me with my research. 
Oh, that's so, wonderful. So, so the the interest has not really subsided. Mm -hmm. um, they're still very much interested in Mississippi. I would say Aiden is probably the most interested in it um, because he's a musician. Um, so much of the music that he loves comes from Mississippi yeah. and it flows through Chicago. So this is um, going to the Delta is very meaningful to him. Oh, well, I hope he does spend some time there with you. Um, well, I was listening to a recent interview with you on, on the Story Made podcast, and you called yourself, which is a phrase I love, a born-again Southerner. And um, you described how you're always trying to convert folks to embracing the South, which I'm not from Mississippi, but I'm always trying to convert folks to loving the South as well. Uh, so I'm, I'm just interested, how did you make your way back to Mississippi to work to work here and to spend so much time here now well I often tell people it's a it was a it was a middle-aged crisis um, I was editing the Virginia Quarterly Review my contract wasn't renewed there and I found myself trying to figure out what to do next uh, and I talked with friends who made similar transitions and what it was that they did. And, and I was just adrift. And I came to Mississippi and one of my friends introduced me to um, Rob Perigen at Millsaps College. And he, he told him, so this is one of my father's best students. You need to give him a job. <laughs> and that's how I ended up at Millsaps College in um, January 2016. Hmm. And I have been back and forth in Mississippi ever since. So I started teaching at the University of Mississippi in 2017. So my it really came later in life mm -hmm. um, when I thought that I would be spending the rest of my working life um, divided between Charlottesville and D.C. And it ended up I'm spending my time between Oxford, Mississippi and Washington, D.C., which is a little bit farther. It's not as A longer commute. <laughs> a longer commute. But it's it's been worth it. It's something that there's so many things that I have gotten to do the last five years that I would not have done had I remained at the University of Virginia. Hmm. I would not, probably would not have written a place like Mississippi. I would not have had the time to think about what my uh, home state meant to me. Um, I would not have kind of really gotten into the work I'm doing in the Mississippi Delta, looking at, well, this is the place where my parents came. My dad hmm. came to the Delta in 1949. Why did they end up there? What were the circumstances of that? And why was he always so obsessed with this, this place? Why did he never want to leave? And why are the people who, who live in the Delta, why is it they feel they can never leave? This hmm. rootedness that people, people from the Delta feel. And my father shared in that rootedness. And I've been trying to understand that. Yeah. And, in some ways. And, and and in writing about the Delta, and one of the things I, I realize as a writer, the Delta is a place where 
a lot has been taken from it as a place. It's a, it's, it's, it's a place where people extract things from it. Mm -hmm. What I'm trying to do as a writer is rather than extracting something from this writing about the Delta is to actually contribute something to the conversation I believe that we need to have about the place of the Mississippi Delta in the culture of Mississippi and the American South in general. And I would even argue its place in American culture. Yeah. Well, when did you, um, I was going to ask you about this later on, but I, I'd love to dive into your work now on the Delta. When did you get started on, on that project? When did you know you wanted to write a book about the Delta? I think I knew when I got back to Mississippi in 2016, I began to visit Milestone, Mississippi, which is where my uh, dad went in 1949, and I began doing research then. So it was, it was something that became kind of an obsession from the, the moment I, I came back to Mississippi. I, I think a lot of it came because I, I realized that I was living this very privileged life within the poorest state in the Union. Hmm. I was at Millsaps College. I was living in Bellhaven. I would spend my time in Bellhaven or Oxford. And I could drive through Mississippi and never encounter poverty. And I realized in the poorest state in the Union, there's something wrong with that. And I realized that there are lots of us who do that in Mississippi. We can really keep ourselves from being aware of being in the poorest state in the Union. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to, I wanted to understand that in some way. And I wanted to understand the people and the and the culture of this place that is, as I say, it's a land of rich soil and poor people. Mm -hmm. And I need, felt the need to understand that. Really from, from the moment I decided to get off Interstate 55 and just start, start wandering through the Delta one day. So have you been spending a lot of time in, in the Delta, you know, talking to people, doing interviews, or is it archival research? Um, it's been both. I've been doing interviews and I've been doing archival research. The year I was at the, the Ratcliffe Institute, I was doing a great deal of, of archival research. Um, I was a little reluctant to think that I could actually do work on the Mississippi Delta from Cambridge, Massachusetts. I was very skeptical of that. But I found that the distance actually helped me. And one of the things I discovered there was the papers of the poet June Jordan, who mm. spent a great deal of time in Mississippi in 1970. And I you know, really dove into a piece she did for the New York Times in 1970 and her notebooks from that trip. Oh, wow. And I began to retrace her trip on some of my trips to the Delta, seeing the places that she saw and thinking about what had changed and what had remained the same. So that year of archival research is really informing the work I'm doing now on the ground, um, doing interviews, reporting, and as always, lots of archival research. Mm -hmm. I'm someone who, a writer who needs the archive to inform what it is that I, that I write. It's a it's a means of fact-checking what mm -hmm. it is that I see. You know, if you see something in the horizon, how has that changed? How has someone else written about it before? 
what is it new that I am seeing or that I can really contribute to this conversation about a place that a great deal has been written about, but what new can I say about it? Hi, I'm Lauren Rhodes. You are listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The Arts Hour is a co-production of the Mississippi Arts Commission and MPB Think Radio. You can also listen to the show on Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5. To have access to all Arts Hour interviews, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to the Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. I'm Lauren Rhodes with the Mississippi Arts Commission, and I'm talking with Governor Arts Award recipient W. Ralph Eubanks. Ralph, I'd, I'd like to ask you a little bit more about your time um, as a Radcliffe Institute fellow. It just sounds like such an amazing program to be around scholars from different disciplines and around the country. What was that, what was that year like for you? It was actually quite, um, quite magical. Uh, you know, you you went you arrive in Cambridge. There it was a it was a hybrid year. Um, so unlike Casey Lehman, who was in the class before me, he had a completely virtual year. Hmm. But I had you know kind of a hybrid year, and there are fifty fellows. You get to know them in varying degrees you would think you might gravitate largely toward the other writers and artists, but my group of friends included writers, artists, filmmakers, scientists, legal historians. Um, And I learned a great deal from the scientists. And what I learned from them was thinking about method. So there's a um, an evolutionary biologist, Stephen Phelps, who is doing work on the science of touch, who's also writing a, a memoir about, so it's blending memoir and science. So as someone who's written memoir, we had lots of discussions about that yeah. and how to blend science. And talking with him about his writing process made me begin to think a, a great deal about about my own and about method and approach. So that was probably the the thing that was most wonderful about it. And the the archives, having access to um, a library, I had two research assistants, Hmm. one of them from South Haven, Mississippi. Really? Um, Was that on purpose? Like, did you know that ahead of time? I did know. Okay. Uh, I interviewed her. and her family is from the Delta, so she was particularly interested in the project. And the other one was from Washington, D.C., so we knew some of the same people. So there was a mm-hmm. great deal of comfort between those two. And we did a research trip together in the Delta. Okay. Uh, and 
which was, you know, we covered, I think, eight Delta counties in two days and did four different interviews. And they wrote a report for me after that about things that they thought maybe I was not seeing, hmm. which I I was really grateful for that that opportunity because I'm also trying to, to reach a younger readership. What is it that a younger reader is going to want to be interested in hearing about a place like the Mississippi Delta? Mm-hmm. And that was something that I learned from them. Uh, and so it was a year where I learned a great deal. I sat on in a few classes at Harvard, you know, sat in on uh, Tracy K. Smith's poetry seminar. Wow. So, and just the, you know, the general camaraderie of the year, we had a, a mixology interest group, and, <laughs> which was a lot of fun. And I, I made Vesper Martinis, which became to be known as the Mississippi Vesper. Oh, so, that rolls off the tongue, too. It does. It does. So it's not really a James Bond martini to my Radcliffe colleagues. <laughs> it, it is a Mississippi martini. That's amazing. Um, and it sounds like you you just had unexpected discoveries, too, like those June Jordan papers. Were, was there anything else that you discovered in the archives that you hadn't expected to find? Um. I think the June Jordan was the most unexpected thing. I wasn't, I wasn't expecting, actually there was some, there was an interview with, with um, a woman from Mound Bayou. So some oral, so oral Mm. histories with Southern women. So, so I had some that were from the Delta. So, and then Fannie Lou Hamer interviews that were also in, at the archive because the Schlesinger libraries and the, campus of Radcliffe, which was the women's college okay. for Harvard. So most of their collection is about American women. So, it, and that really, it was, it was really illuminating just to, to see that and to have a librarian spend time with me trying to discern what it was that I really needed. Yeah. Uh, and then actually doing some of the research alongside one of my colleagues who uh, studies dance. And Hmm. she was just interested in June Jordan and how there were things that she found in the archive for us to, for me, that she thought would be useful for me that I probably would not, would have missed. So it was that camaraderie, the collegiality. um, And, you know, it's, it's almost like, as my wife said, it's like, being back in graduate school, mm-hmm. said, except now you have money. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure it's going to be an incredible book. I can't wait. I can't wait to read it someday. Um, I want to switch gears to your most recent book, A Place Like Mississippi, A Journey Through a Real and Imagined Literary Landscape. And I like to describe it as a literary road trip through Mississippi. Um, for those who haven't read the book, yet, would you tell us about, give an overview of what A Place Like Mississippi is about? A Place Like Mississippi tells the story of Mississippi literature. I would say I'm telling the story somewhat upside down, the way that most people would think about Mississippi literature. So many people think about the origins of Mississippi's literature as coming out of the Mississippi Delta. And rather than beginning in the Mississippi Delta, I chose to begin 
the journey through Mississippi's literary landscape on the Gulf Coast with the work of Natasha Trethewey and Jessamyn Ward, and then to travel up through the state and end in the Delta, ending the book at Parchman Penitentiary mm -hmm. in a writing class there. So I, it was just a, I made the, it was a conscious decision that I made to turn things around. My editor originally wanted me to begin in the Delta. And I said, that's not the way this is, the story needs to be told. And that's when I realized these are two writers, Natasha Trethewey and Jasmine Ward, who are telling a new story about Mississippi. I think so much of Mississippi's literary past is rooted in the Delta, mm -hmm. but here's Mississippi's literary future. So let's start there and then move on through the state and end in the Delta. And that was that was the uh, conscious choice that I made in outlining and deciding how I was going to write the book. And what what planted the the seed of this this idea for this book? Well, it's interesting. This is this is sometimes how your other work in writing about Mississippi can lead to something else. I was approached to write this book. It's not a book that I had set out to write. Mm -hmm. I had been thinking about a book on Mississippi literature focused largely on the work of William Faulkner and Eudora Welty and the overlaps between their work hmm. and the way that they looked at the landscape and the differing ways that they looked at the landscape. And my editor at Timber Press um, approached me about this book and Someone, he said, everywhere I go in Mississippi, everyone says you should talk with Ralph Eubanks. So I'm calling you and asking if you would consider writing this book for um, a series of books they're doing on literary landscapes. That's how I end up doing it. It's not something, it wasn't like this idea that came into my head. Mm -hmm. It was someone, you know, he planted the idea in my head and, I, and he told me what he had in mind. And then I said, no, I have a different story in yeah. mind. Well, that's what a good editor is for, too. It's exactly what a good editor is for. And you, a writer should always listen to his or her editor. <laughs> Editors out there are just thanking you. Um. <laughs> well, I, well, I've worked the other side of the desk. So right. Side, so I, I, so I, I like being edited. Um, I have to say that I'm tried to turn off that editorial brain because that editorial brain can keep you from being productive as a writer because mm. you're you're editing rather than writing you right. have to write and you have to allow your editor to see your mistakes and be able to correct you on them and to guide you and um, help you shape the narrative were there any writers who you discovered or that you learned more about throughout this process of you know going through mississippi um, past or present that you you want to you wish more people knew about or read um yes i mean i really um do wish that thinking about really i think brad watson is the one who comes to mind for me hmm. a great deal brad was very helpful in writing this book and I love his book The Heaven of Mercury um, and Miss Jane and he felt that he had a 
he said, I have a modest literary output, but there's so much about that part of Mississippi that his books told me that I felt was was missing from from the story of Mississippi literature. So Brad Watson is someone I think every Mississippian should should read. William Attaway, um, Blood on the Forge, hmm. which is not set in Mississippi, but William Attaway is from Greenville, Mississippi. Okay. Uh, ended up in Chicago, was a friend of Richard Wright's. Um, his second book did not do well. It got a negative review from a writer by the name of Ralph Ellison. And, oh. and that shifted him into filmmaking. And one of the things that he ended up doing is writing the Banana Boat song. Oh, wow. <laughs> so he became a songwriter, filmmaker. So William Attaway um, and the work of Ellen Douglas. Hmm. Another, I, I can't say enough good things about the work of Ellen Douglas. And I, I had read her work as an undergraduate at the University of Mississippi and reading her story on the lake, uh, going back to that story in The New Yorker, talking with her son, Brooks Haxton, the poet Brooks Haxton, about the genesis of that story made me dive deeper into her work as well. So Ellen Douglas is another writer. Thank you for those for those recommendations. Um, and I, I'd like to ask you a little more about the ending, how, you know, you ended the book intentionally in Parchment, um, why did you choose to do that? And what was so impactful about Parchment to you? It's a little two-part question there. Well, I chose to end the book there because I had worked with Louis Bourgeois on his um, prison writing initiative and had read a, lot, a great deal of the work there. And one of those stories stuck out for me by one writer who, and he said, poverty comes with an entourage. And he tells his whole story. And I found these stories very moving. So I asked Lewis if I could go into some of the classes and talk with them about, um, about their writing and about their work. And that was where I introduced the work of the poet Etheridge Knight, because I realized that the, Etheridge Knight as a poet would not have become a poet had he committed the crime he committed in Mississippi, he committed in which he committed in Indiana. Indiana, mm. he got education in prison. He would not have gotten that in Mississippi. So I think we would not know that name had yeah. it not been prison education. So that was really what motivated that. And what was unexpected for me was feeling this incredible bond to these these men, and they're all men because. They're only men at parchment now. Uh, and the way that literature was something that got them through their time there. I never asked anyone what it was that they did while they were there. Mm -hmm. I only wanted to understand them as writers. And that's why I closed by saying, these are my fellow Mississippi writers. And I, I genuinely feel that way about those men. And, and I think that's what I want people to think about every time they drive past Parchman or any other prison in Mississippi, and we have quite a few of them, mm -hmm. that there are people inside there who are trying trying to be writers, who are trying to educate themselves and think about their life after being incarcerated. 
Well, thank you, Ralph. Um, we're, we're almost out of time, but I want to make sure for, for people who are interested in reading more of your work, learning more about you, uh, where can people find out more about your work and, and you? <laughs> well, um, I do have a website, which is very easy. It's wralphubanks.com. And I have links there to essays that I've published and you know, number of them in a lot of different places, as well as links to my books and media and to my um, lecture at Radcliffe about why the Mississippi Delta matters. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners. So if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel.